The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had the same reaction when sitting on this boat with heavily armed people. I just thought, okay, we originally planned to go for a night dive that night, and that would have kept us in in freedom. But I decided, no, let's take it easy. Uh, I'm here to relax, so let's just uh, have this uh, sundowner in the evening. And then, because of that, we were kidnapped. So I thought, like, oh, if only I hadn't done that. And I discovered struggling with your fate is, uh, is making it even worse because you lose a lot of energy. Welcome to the Mentor TV podcast and stay curious with Patricia falco Welcome back to another edition of COVID-19 from crisis to creation here on Mentory TV. I'm Patricia Falco-Bekali, your host. And before getting into today's very exciting subject, let me say thank you to all of you out there. You are so participating into Mentory TV, really co-creating, sending me ideas, making comments. So thanks very much also for potentially subscribing to the channel, hitting the bell button so I can always keep you informed when I'm about to release the latest video. So thank Thanks for that. Now, today, I really want to drill deep into our current series from crisis to creation here on Mentory TV. Because just imagine that. Okay, we're all facing a crisis right now with the pandemic, but imagine the following being on holiday over Easter with your beloved parents, taking it easy, having a good time, and then being kidnapped from one moment to the next by militant Muslim terrorists kidnapped, taking hostage, and then basically transferred and kept 140 days in the jungle of the Philippines. How does that sound for you as a crisis? I mean, is that something that breaks us or makes us, makes us potentially stronger through this crisis if we come out on the other side? Well, these are questions I have in my head, of course, not only after reading this fantastic book, by Mark Wallach, Stark durch Krisen. I read it in German, but it just came out in English as well. Strong through crisis and the art of not losing your head, which I thought was a very interesting subtitle. I invited Mark to the show because I think his story is luckily very unique and very seldom, but he's got so much to tell us, share with us in terms of his experiences and most importantly, his learnings. Mark, so good to have you here with us. Thank you so much, Patricia, for having me on your show. I'm really happy to be here. 
You know, the first one I stumbled over, Mark, was, of course, okay, the art of not losing your head. And it was kind of like, okay, you are faced with militant <laughs> a terrorists that threaten your life all the time, which is not mm. funny. I shouldn't be laughing. And you are actually at the risk of losing your head. So that is literal, but we are taking it uh, a moment further. And why did you think it was a good subtitle, The Art of Not Losing Your Head? Well, that's interesting because, yes, you laugh and you should laugh whenever you're really threatened in a situation that you cannot escape from. So I actually used black humor a lot. And literally, um, this phrase of not losing my head, uh, this popped up in a situation where I was threatened or we were threatened as hostages by our kidnappers. And they want, they said, well, if no ransom money is paid, we have to uh, uh, chop off your head, basically, to behead you. And I discovered myself to have this phrase on my lips saying, oh, Mark, don't lose your head now. So this was a, a way of handling the situation already. And laughing sometimes is the last thing you can do. And I think, so better than nothing. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into this yeah. kind of strategy a little deeper. And um, of course, that situation where I think um, Abu Sabaya was just really, really frustrated in a moment of, I don't want to say truth of past, where this hostage negotiation was uh, basically halted between trying to get you out, buy you out of the jungle and nothing was happening. But before we go deep into the actual, the actual steps that you describe in your fantastic book, Mark, let uh, let's get the story out a bit and set the frame by you having lived through it for our viewers, what you lived through. So you described the main context already very well. So this was really coming from a dream vacation, uh, going diving with my parents. Uh, I hadn't seen them a long time. I was working abroad being 27 years old. And then I, in the most peaceful moment you can imagine that we look at the sunset and suddenly we were uh, kidnapped by those heavily armed men who uh, arrived on our small island in Malaysia and then they yeah, abducted us to the Philippine jungle 20 hours on the open ocean with a small boat and so that was then landing so unprepared in the middle of a jungle and in the middle of a guerrilla war because they were rebels that fight for an independent state in the southern Philippines. So that was really breathtaking. And I, at the same time, learned a lot on how I and people function under stress. And so looking back on that, uh, it's also a learning experience. But it, yes, it was tough during that time, obviously. Oh, of course. And uh, the stress and the constant stress and the uncertainty, not knowing what's going to happen literally to your life because somebody else has taken over your life must be very, very, I mean, must be just a lifetime experience to think, okay, what's going to happen? And, and I cannot just walk out of here because if I walk, I'm a dead man walking. I wonder, what was your very first reaction internally that surprised you in this, uh, in this kind of situation? Was it, was it disbelief? leave or were you going like, all right, is this now, you know, <laughs> candid camera or is this real? Well, yes, there was this moment, I think, that many people know from other crises, perhaps even COVID, that we think like, oh, 
what the hell is going on? Why, why now? Why us? And uh, I, I had the same reaction when sitting on this boat with heavily armed people. I just thought, okay, we originally planned to go for a night dive that night, and that would have kept us in, in freedom. But I decided, no, let's take it easy. Uh, I'm here to relax. So let's just uh, have this uh, sundowner in the evening and then because of that we were kidnapped so i thought like oh if only i hadn't done that and i discovered struggling with your fate is uh, is making it even worse because you lose a lot of energy and then surprisingly i had a moment on this boat where i thought like could it be that whatever is happening right now is supposed to happen in my life that it has a deeper sense that i can learn something from that and that has a, a good reason, uh, because I was at that time already uh, working in a management consultancy, being very stressed, and I was actually looking for orientation, how to change my life, how to change my job, and things like that. And I, I asked the universe, if you want, like, give me a sign of what to do. And sitting on this boat, I thought, could it be that this is the sign now giving me a new direction in life? And that helped me to accept the situation and to deal with it. So this acceptance was certainly something uh, very helpful and something that surprised me, even uh, myself sitting on this boat and saying, well, it could be a, a learning experience. Yeah, I'd say this is extremely mature under this kind of stress, I mean, life-threatening stress. And you just mentioned stress, and I want to go into acceptance as well. And the question of, okay, is this supposed to happen? However horrible it feels right now, but this is really, did I ask for it? How did I get myself into the situation? And the guilt, the guilt that you felt, uh, of course, going for the night dive. And also your mommy felt because she suggested, okay, come out, leave that burnout kind of uh, environment behind you. You need a holiday. And so she felt um, that as well. So when it comes to stress and how to deal with stress, let's get a little bit more technical here because that's the interesting part where in a situation you, you may um, oscillate between total euphoria. All right. There is a light at the end of the tunnel out of my out of my crisis and then total depression should it be crushed that hope crushed tell us a little bit about how to manage these these very very you know opposing feelings within us yeah, again, I think that many people today can relate to that feeling, uh, trying to stay optimistic in a time of uncertainty. We all don't know how long this pandemic is, is going on, if it's uh, how it develops, when it's going to end, if at all. And so the one reaction could be, okay, to stay positive, to, to be optimistic and to, to really hope for the next date. You know, there are many dates out there when all this may be over, hopefully. And we had the same situation. We were hoping and we were given hope that our ordeal may be over within a few days. So the kidnappers, when we asked, like, how, how long is it going to take? They told us, well, could be uh, two days or three days. And we were so euphoric, as you said already, that we were like looking forward to that date of, of, of our release date. But when the date came, um, then we were still in captivity and this was so frustrating. So we were from, from euphoric uh, to depressed, you know, these ups and downs again, hoping for another day, hoping for next week. This really wrecked a lot of uh, us and especially the optimists had a very, very tough time. 
So the other strategy then for me was to, to uh, learn very early during that captivity to prepare for a long time in the jungle, to not be too optimistic, yeah? but to prepare for a long time and a long tough time because as long as we're in captivity, we still have the same risk. You know, we, are, we had a lot of risks to deal with it and we need to be prepared for that. So uh, this was very important. And I, I keep telling also, or I keep sharing this experience because I think it's very valuable today as well for many people not to be too optimistic, but to prepare for a long time and to, to deal with like a, a plan B if the light of the tunnel is just too far away. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought that was a very surprising point you made there. Hey, optimism is great, but just, just keep it at bay simply because of these kind of ups and downs you live through. And I thought what was interesting is it goes beyond what you were saying earlier, the acceptance. Not only do you accept, okay, what's happening around you, but you're starting to take responsibility and feed yourself into the situation. Um, and uh, you, you kind of say, okay, this is my life right now, be two days, three days, 140 days. What can I make of it? It's exactly, you have to arrange the new normal uh, for a while. You don't have to accept it like uh, this is nice. You don't have to say it's, it's, it's great. That's a great uh, uh, a misunderstanding to say, oh, great, thanks for the crisis. It's, uh, it's going to be a great chance. No, this is not what it's about. It's just to, to accept the situation as it is and to best deal, to do the best out of it. And uh, for us, it, it actually... Positive thinking, it was, was for me so surprising. I, I realized positive thinking can even kill. I, I'm a total optimist, but I realized if you're too optimistic, optimism can be lethal. Why? Because we had, a, I, I'm going to share a short, short story about that, if that's okay yeah, with you. Please, to absolutely, that's what I'm here for. Okay, great. So we had, uh, you must imagine, a situation where the Philippine military was attacking us. Well, th this didn't seem to be a release because there were really, there was heavy fire in our direction with artillery and everything. So our lives were at risk and we ran away. We were completely unprepared. We, we didn't even take, take water with us. And then we kept walking through the jungle for hours and hours and... Uh, in this humid climate, very soon some of us uh, collapsed because of being thirsty, of being so exhausted. And in the end, we survived that uh, uh, attack. But now, after that, you, we could have been optimistic and say, well, we survived that, so now it's over. But it's really important to keep this risk in mind because it can come back. So we needed to prepare for a post potential second uh, uh, attack, which actually happened, uh, to have a bottle of water ready uh, for the case, just in case we need to run away again from the military so that we don't starve on, on the way. So really keeping the risk in mind is very important, just as important as staying positive, as believing that in the end everything will be uh, all right again. Yeah, absolutely. And to have these backup strategies, you said plan B, plan C even, yeah. and then really just say, okay, it's not going to happen, but if yes, I'm prepared. And I think somebody said to me once, you know, luck is actually when being prepared meets opportunity. All right. No, that's so, very nicely. And that's I, nicely I really, put. really love that. And it is so true, Mark. And I tend to be over-preparing. I mean, look at this, how I read your book. Okay, so <laughs> I've been talking about, I think, three hours. 
<laughs> and still want to know more and still haven't uh, exhausted everything that you have to say. But what I think is interesting here is the difference in people which um, and how they react and whether they learn instantly from this kind of mini crisis within the overall crisis, which then can be also applied in the business world. Because um, I wonder the, the person that may really change in that moment, all of a sudden, you know, you've got somebody who doesn't look very extrovert or strong becoming the hero or somebody who never cared about anybody becomes at the helper. Um, somebody who is always at the forefront going, yeah, we're going to make it, is going to retreat and say, you, to be honest with you, nah, nah, you, you take over. In, I don't want to say in vino veritas, but in crisis veritas. Is that something that you found? Oh, that's a, that's a big question. Well, actually, it was so surprising to see how our uh, group of hostages, which was put together by fate, basically, 21 hostages from seven nations, how we over time evolved into a team. Because we kind of uh, had situations where we had to deal with a challenge such as heavy rain, which is in, in the rainforest is really something you don't want to experience. So somebody, uh, we, we all were panicking, discussing what to do. And there was somebody in our group who had a very clever idea. He said, well, we have this plastic sheet, so let's just build a, a roof with that where the, the water can f flow away. And this was very good because he started leading our team saying, well, hold here, make a knot there. And then we had this, this uh, roof in the end. But even more important than this roof was the fact that we had a leader for whatever needs to be constructed if we are in, the, in such a situation. And over time, there were a lot of roles developing, like the first aid uh, um, person in our group who was treating our wounds and illnesses. There were those who, who cooked, yeah, so, so who, who knew how to make fire and to keep fire in the rain or in the night. And we had a speaker in the group. So this was very important to find those roles. But now what you're saying is very interesting. That's why it's a big question. It's so important in those uh, teams. And today this is called agile teams. We, we lived according to the principles of agility. Yeah, which is now introduced in, in, into uh, the business world. So we lived according to all those roles. We didn't have one leader, but we didn't like leadership. We had a role, a re leader for different roles. Now, interestingly, this is good to have in a team clear roles, but it's just as important to be flexible. And that's what you mentioned. If somebody, if an optimist is suddenly becoming a pessimist for a day, a good team has perhaps a pessimist who becomes an optimist in that situation says, look, it's not just that bad. You have to be flexible. And I discovered this role of a helper in me. So I had this helping role, uh, focused a lot on my mother, for example, who had a, a tough time mentally and physically to survive. And that helped me a lot, you know, calming her down and calming others down who were perhaps more, let's say, aggressive also with the kidnappers. But then if, if that's okay, I have another story to share on that oh, you, one. You go right ahead, Mark. You're right ahead. <laughs> Good, because that, that closes the question because... Now, I was uh, a helper and I was also a diplomat. I tried to uh, uh, negotiate a bit or to facilitate the team uh, conflicts and so on. But there was one day when I saw in front of myself that my mother's most probably going to die, where I freaked out. I, I lost my temper. And then something very interestingly uh, happened because I yelled at, uh, I was, you know, 
having a hard time on the kidnappers, yelling at them, and they were showing, okay, with their weapons, uh, one more word, one more step, and we will kill you or others. So this was a very critical situation. And then someone who normally I had to cool down a little bit because he was a little bit uh, impulsive or maybe even aggressive at times, he then went, turned into my role. Yeah, he, he was then the diplomat. He came up to me and said, Mark, cool down. You know, your mother is fine again. She was had a mouth-to-mouth -mouth respiration. She's alive. She's fine. And he cooled down as well, the kidnappers, by saying, look, everything under control, Mike, is going to cool down. And that situation showed me a real good team is not just one where everyone has his role, but where people stay flexible on going into the role of another one if necessary. Absolutely. And that is the kind of social support you get. And I wonder to what extent um, it is also a learning process within the group. Uh, let's put it this way. People always saw you as the helper and diplomat uh, being different, but they see what difference your role, uh, accepting that role and doing with that really makes in terms of group dynamics in certain situations. And they go like, huh, I might be different, but that's a, that's a good way to handle potential situations. And then, you know, kind of you don't only swap roles, but you pull them out of something that you've either learned or had in you anyway. And that was always my question when I read your book, Mark, Mark was, Did you really change as a man? Do we all change as people due to crisis? Or is the crisis, the situation really pulling up all this portfolio of our 360 degrees characters that we are capable of? Well, both is true. So we do have our strategies that we developed uh, in our lives, how to survive. You know, that starts as being a kid when you start crying and you get a certain reaction or not. This will influence of how your reaction, how your strategy is to, to get help, for example. So you enter into a crisis with a certain uh, set of uh, uh, strategies and strengths. It's good to know them, by the way. This is a very good thing to look back what helped me in other crises, if you are in a crisis. So, but then again, you can also develop new strengths. You can uh, consciously, for example, learn from others. Role models, uh, people who, for example, it was a good example. We had somebody who was a believer, who was a, a, a Christian, who, who invited us for his sunset prayer. Mm -hmm. And I usually didn't pray uh, I, uh, that way, but he said, Let, come along. And so I learned from him because I learned that praying is not saying that's what I expected. It's saying like, oh, please, God, get us out of this miserable situation. No, he did something else. He said, Thank you, dear Lord, for the sunshine that we had today. And the next day I had to laugh because then I thought, what's he going to say today? Oh, it's raining. And he said, well, thank you for the rain because we can refill our water resources. And then I realized uh, after everyone had his turn of thanking for something positive on that day, no matter how hard that day was, that we turned out to be more positive in the end. And we practice this every night almost. So I learned that we can stimulate our optimism just by saying thank you for whatever is positive in a bad moment. Yes, absolutely. And you were talking about these um, survival strategies uh, in your book, which I thought was fantastic. You already mentioned humor. 
I learned with a shock that you started smoking. Are you kidding me? Because of the stress, (laughs) at least for a while, perhaps you gave it up. But humor and appreciation and, uh, you know, being thankful what, what, what there is. And, and you also speak about how different people reacted to just take their mind away from what was actually happening to them. Some of them meditated, others just started singing, others went into you know, going deep into the nature and the beauty of it. But I think in terms of how to deal with this, it, it was a coping strategy, but a positive one, even if you try to plug yourself out of that stressful moment, right? Well, there are two main reactions to stress, basically. So that goes back into ancient times. We all know this this tiger coming along in the wild, and then you have two possibilities. You can either run away or you can fight. And these are two possibilities, and some people tend to run away. They're probably the faster ones, and the other ones tend to fight because they tend to be the stronger ones. And in our situation, we couldn't run away. That didn't make sense. We couldn't fight because there were hundreds of uh, heavily armed rebels surrounding us in the jungle. We didn't know where to go. So this was, in reality, no option, neither nor. But in, uh, in, in another sense, mentally, this was exactly what we did. So some of us were... Uh, running away. They were dreaming away, they were sleeping, they were reading. We After a while, we had something like books to read. They tried to escape the situation just mentally. And that for a moment can help to just reduce your stress. That's fine. Obviously, if you're back suddenly because somebody's shooting around you, then sometimes re-entering into reality can be even more bumpy than just staying in reality. But anyway, it helped at times to just run away. The others were more the fighter type uh, who thought, okay, I cannot escape the situation, but I can fight for a better situation, for better conditions. And that's what we did, for what many of us did. That's what I did, for example. So in a situation... Sitting, for example, just on the floor, on the, on the ground on coconuts for weeks and weeks, this was really uh, turning out to be a back-aching experience, a serious one. So I, descri- I, 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 de- um, I decided to, to take the opportunity when we had some wood, we had a saw and a hammer, and I started constructing a chair. So a chair, and it was such a relief to sit on this chair. This was great. But even more important for me was the feeling that I can actually do something. I can kind of attack. I can do something to improve my situation. And this is a a very common resilience strategy called self-efficacy, that you can do something, that you have the feeling that you're able to do something. And like that, you get out of this victim role and you get into a dealing and handling the situation. Yeah, absolutely. And that would have been my next question because this is exactly what I find fascinating is just do something. Doesn't matter what. Yes. Activity. It empowers you because you are doing something. It's not you having things done around you. And this empowerment puts you in a different mindset because you're thinking, okay, I'm contributing. And, and I wonder to what extent actually really does impacts to get out of this, why me? I'm a victim to eventually being a winner. Exactly. And it's it's as simple as you say it. Uh, uh, Do something. It doesn't really matter what you do as long as you do it. So if you have the feeling you can improve your situation, you can do something about it, it already gives your inner strength because you're not the victim of the external circumstances. You become, uh, again, the captain of your own boat. 
Absolutely. And there are so many other strategies. And I really um, say people need to read through them because we could go through all of them and they're very, very efficient. Last one on this subject before we moving on to the second part of your book, which is when you were then free, is, you know, the relationship dynamics. We talked about it amongst the hostages, but what was in my mind that you also talked about is the relationship between you and the hostage takers. So the terrorists, because spending more or less also 140 days with you in particular, more or less with the same people, um, I wonder to what extent you build a relationship. It also becomes collaboration or whether this is something that doesn't happen. Oh, it has to happen and had to happen uh, because we were so dependent on them. They, our lives were in their hands and we were sitting in the jungle. We were no prepared, not prepared for staying in the jungle. So if we had, for example, to build a, a roof or something, a house with bamboo, we needed a, a, a strong knife, a big knife. And if you want to have a big knife, you have to have some trust of your kidnappers. So we had to build trust over time. So what we did is to, to build some relations to get um, a positive relation with at least some of the kidnappers who would then give us, for example, knife or information about what's actually happening. And uh, more important was even that uh, we were uh, told you are our instruments in our uh, holy war. So at first I thought, okay, that's great because it's not about us. It's nothing personal. But then we realized if we're just instruments, that's a very abstract thing. You would just use an instrument if you have to. So we had to build a human relationship in order to increase, to, to, to elevate the uh, threshold of them killing us. So we had to uh, show, okay, I'm a nice guy. Please don't kill me. So it's as simple as that. So we did build relationships, not with everyone, but with those who were treating us more or less friendly. Yeah, so they were coming uh, about building relationship, trust and networking as well, even though um, it is your enemy. And I think this is also very interesting in a corporate context where you might have group yeah. dynamics, but you're together, you know, uh, facing an enemy, but you have to kind of also work with the enemy going forward just to be successful in whatever you want to do. So I thought it was an excellent point you, you were making there as well, that you actually do need whoever the adversary is to, to develop and get out of, of your potential crisis. All right, let's, let's move on. And I have to say, you know, <laughs> reading through the second part, and again, I shouldn't really laugh, Mark, uh, you being freed, uh, very emotional, very beautiful. You learned a lot uh, and you felt this is a second chance for me, a second part of my life, a renaissance. I'm ready for everything. Going through this kind of crisis of being, uh, you know, kidnapped, it prepares me for everything. And it just did not. And let me put it crudely, this is how I felt, that for a good eight to 10 years, you were walking around in an identity crisis, not really knowing what to do with yourself in your career, with the women, and kind of bouncing from one to the other. Or is that too strong? Oh, no, that's uh, that's put very nicely. And I would actually start with the feeling of getting out. And I have a picture to share, if that's fine, oh, which shows exactly that. Because uh, interestingly, I've uh, look, this is, I, I just moved to the side for a second. So this is actually, uh, look at this. This is a picture where, when I was, uh, sorry for that, um, when I was uh, freed from the Philippines. Look at this. So yeah. this is me. Yeah, and I was, you can see, 
I was euphoric. I couldn't believe what happens. It's like I'm a free man again. And I was so, so super happy. And then what happened is I went back to my uh, original life. And so I, yeah, went, I, I made a big mistake. I made a big mistake because I went back and I thought, okay, nothing can stress me anymore. I survived and I just go back to my career. I do what I do before because I know I can do it. And I forgot about the crisis I mentioned already that I already had kind of a lot of stress uh, while working as a management consultant. But I thought it's the easiest to just go back into my comfort zone, to go back to my job. And then five years later, yeah, I thought nothing could stress me anymore ever that's what many people thought, yeah, and, and that's what I thought in the jungle as well. But five years later, I was in a burnout. So I wondered, how could that happen? How could that happen that, you know, I survived this jungle experience and then, you know, it, it's deadlines, which are not really uh, lethal in the end in my job, which turned me into a burnout. So... And then I had another lesson to learn about crisis. So I wasn't just as enlightened as I thought I would be. I still had to learn a lesson. And that was, uh, took me quite some time. Also in my private life, you're totally correct. I had the same circle of uh, circling around the same crisis, having relationships which were great. And then I had a crisis and then it ended and I had a new relationship and it ended. It was just like a jumping jack up and down, up and down. Yeah, the crisis loop, you describe it as that. And what I thought was so fascinating is that you said, okay, I'm going to get out of my job. I'm going to be a jazz musician. And I get, yay, cool. And that is fabulous, which was then also the beginning of the end of uh, a relationship you had uh, with one of those ladies. So I think this is very important to know that even though you went through a crisis, life is still different and that we yeah. tend to uh, fall back into whoever we are or were before this crisis. So not everything has changed. Um, and uh, we tend to just go back to what we know because the kind of jungle we face in our Western world is still a jungle, but very differently so. And uh, then I, I wonder, okay, so you find yourself, and again, it is the pain that really makes us move and change, even though change is constant. This is one of the, the sentences you also said. And you had a couple of epiphanies that made you then realize, no, I, I, need, to, I need to change the, the modus operandi of my life. And when I was thought, it was really funny, the owl. So if you want to re, you know, relate to our viewers what the owl was, and then also a very dear, um, wonderful lady you, you dated, splitting up with you saying, Mark, whatever you are about, it ain't for me. <laughs> you know, and pum pum, you were you were toast basically. But tell us about the owl first and why that really literally hit you. Well, that was a magic moment in my life. Uh, so I was uh, late thirties. Uh, so about ten years ago, I was working again in a, in, the, in my old job, if you want, being senior controller with the team, and then. Uh, I was so stressed. I went in my car, uh, going home late night with the colleagues, still discussing kind of Excel tables, you know, how to calculate the budget for the next five years and things like that. And I was so in that world when suddenly there was this boom, this, this sound, you know, we were sitting in the car and I thought, what's that? And I uh, went out of the car, went back the street and there was this little owl sitting. And 
that was a magic moment because um, you must imagine that it's a long story actually because just a few days before that I had an owl expert because my uh, back then girlfriend her father was into owls for some reason and we visited him and he said look if ever that happens to you have a have a blanket ready and I did have a blanket ready you know in my car uh, to 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 fetch that owl and to then bring it to him because otherwise with a broken wing that would actually not survive and I realized when treating this owl when taking this blanket when walking through the snow through the through, through the dark in my in my black suit i had so much power i had so much clarity and i missed that clarity in my job and i realized i had that clarity when i was actually uh, kidnapped because i knew exactly what i do and why i do it i did it in the jungle just to survive to be a free man again and here i did something for this little owl and i realized i want to have more of that feeling in my life especially in my job life so from that moment on uh, i did not become like an owl doctor that's not the case but i thought okay i have to find out how i can get this feeling into my life and i realized okay when working with and for people that's something i really like it's not really working with numbers and abstract processes, what is really kicking me in my life. Yeah, absolutely. And just to interject there, Mark, is, is exactly where you transitioned and be, being a coach and, and coaching people about, uh, you know, corporate life and what you learned. What I thought was really, really interesting is that you, you had this moment of clarity where I wondered, hey, we always talk about freedom of choice as a privilege. But is it, or is it just confusing? You know, do we really appreciate enough that we are active human brains that can make choices and take that responsibility, not just bump around? And, and how this choice of doing what you want is being taken away from you, let's say in the jungle situation, all of a sudden gives you the clarity, I know what I live for. I have my purpose. And that is exactly what uh, closes the circle on that, that part of your book, you found your purpose in. Exactly. So I suffered at some time uh, in the corporate world of all doors being open. I had really, I was successful, even though I was pretty stressed, but I was successful and I, I could do so many things. And I thought like, okay, what a choice. Uh, I didn't know what to do really. And during my captivity or when being kidnapped, I actually found a certain relief that I don't have any choice. I just have one thing to do that's to survive. So I wondered what is this one thing in my life that I'm really willing and able to, to do everything for uh, and very sustainably. So where, where I'm stay healthy and, and strong. And yes, I found my uh, purpose from this little event with the owl because I kept thinking how to get this feeling into my life. And I realized it's working with and for people. That's the short way I can put it. When I see that, I can make a difference in other people's lives. And uh, so today, what is most rewarding for me is when I am having a, a keynote. So I, that's what I mainly do is to give keynotes or talks for companies or teams or uh, open ones. And when I get a feedback that people say, okay, I could relate to your story. And that actually made a change in my life, a positive one. Then I have this feeling I do something which makes sense in my life as well, because I know what I'm actually working for. So Absolutely. that definitely uh, was was a great learning for me and I did not learn that during uh, my captivity but 
Freedom is something I have to say. I learned uh, from my captivity that freedom and peace is something great in life that I didn't cherish before. I thought it's just a given. So that's something that stayed until today. Yeah. And that makes me ask, what were the main values that shifted within you? It is... Um, Well, as I said, I haven't become enlightened. I just broadened my uh, uh, my scope of experience. So sometimes I think of the jungle and realize, okay, I'm now free to decide what I can do, which is great, as long as I know what I, I want to choose and what I want to do. So I think I cherish a lot more uh, those givens of freedom in life which many people, by the way, today uh, start to cherish more and more with the COVID situation I mean, because they, they are not free to move, they're not free to meet, and they are longing for the same uh, situations as I did when being in the jungle. So to meet a friend, just to have a, a drink together, people are waiting for that. And I think this is something, a value, which is a positive outcome from such a crisis that you can actually cherish more what was given before. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the stories I loved um, is when you said, you know what, um, after weeks and weeks of just having rice, I got a sweetie. And all of a sudden I had this unbelievable bang of an emotion to for the first time in, you know, days and days, if not weeks, having something sweet. And that made you really realize how value can shift from a commodity to an absolute luxury. And this is why I was asking, you know, has your sense of what is luxury these days changed to what is lifestyle, to what is really appreciation, a cool beer with your brother, or, or you know, the Rolex watch, not to mention all the other brands. And, and I'm sure there are some dramatic shifts potentially. Well, to be honest, you get accustomed very easily to those luxury and comfort uh, aspects of life. That's what happened to me. So for the first day I sho showed you the picture, I was so super euphoric. I couldn't believe I can just go to a toilet, which was a luxury yeah, after months uh, to sit there, to flush, to wash your you're hands. You're not saying to your toilet, good morning water. toilet. <laughs> I'm so appreciative of you. Of yes. That doesn't happen. <laughs> It, it was, but not for long, you know, it, it was for some days, it was crazy. I was like, I thought like, it's amazing, uh, this normal life, you know, just the small things as well. It's not, it wasn't about the Rolex or anything. It was really about the toilet. So that was interesting for me. But then I realized uh, I, and, and I think humans just get accustomed to this. Uh, external kind of motivation or luxury and what really is sustainable is if you find your inner values what is really important what is really valuable to yourself as a human and people are different yeah so, so uh, everyone has his different purpose in life and this for me finding my purpose working with and for people was This was a sustainable thing. And I think that changed my value that I focused my time not on getting money for being clever and doing analytics, but sharing uh, uh, emotions, sharing a story in order to inspire people for their own lives. Exactly. And what you're doing right now, I think, is so fundamental. And uh, a couple of last questions for how you apply what you learned there in the corporate world. You know, what are the main elements that make a group a team? 
Well, it's this process of team building. And so, you know, perhaps as Bruce Tuckman for a model, a four phase model of forming a team, then there's a storming phase with a lot of conflict. And then it's a, a norming phase where you agree on roles and of ways how to, how and what to do. And then only, only then it's a performing team. So I realized, uh, we were not a good team because we had no conflicts. No, we were a good team in spite and thanks to the conflicts that we had because it was the storming phase that put us uh, into the situation to grow into a performing team. And this is one of the messages I share in my talks with, uh, with companies when it's all about team building, that it's important to know that conflicts, whenever a team changes, the structure changes, when there are new challenges, Conflicts are an important part of this phase before you can perform. So don't hold down, uh, don't try to eliminate the conflicts, try to use them and turn them into something creative. Yeah, it's a communication culture. So I think if that is something that is allowed to have conflict and it doesn't become personal, but it always goes about what you're trying to achieve, I think that is a big step. Well, conflicts by nature become a little bit personal for a moment, but it's important not to say, okay, it's wrong what you do, but it's important to ask, why is it that you do it? If, if in the private life somebody slams the door, that's perhaps not very kind, uh, or if somebody leaves a meeting, but it's important to understand what is his value that is obviously uh, uh, in discussion, which is not seen, and to, to discuss that, to find a way of dealing with that, and not to just say, you never slam the door again, or you never leave the meeting again, because that's just, a, 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 that's just a, how do you say, um, that's just how the conflict shows, but the inner conflict, that's where we can learn something from. Yeah, so it can be personal for a moment, and usually is, but then go ahead and try to understand. Resolve it positively and with a certain outcome, which is beneficial for all the stakeholders. And uh, the last one on this one, which I thought was very um, important to see, that you know, hierarchy within a group. What what is more what is more conducive for the outcome? You know we are agility. You mentioned it already. We are in an environment. Yeah. It's a VUCA world. You you go into that subject as well in your book. And I wonder how to really see whether there's actually a crisis in the team. You have the obvious crisis when the team just doesn't work. But what about the sign-in crisis? How can a manager find out through the group dynamics that there is something bubbling underneath, which in the long run is really damaging? Well, there are many indicators from people being sick or leaving or a fluctuation. Everyone knows those indicators, but it's really not to try to simply attract new people or to resolve a small problem, but to really think, is it the right strategy we're heading for? Don't be too positive, you know, like everything's fine. No, if something goes wrong, then obviously you have the gift of, uh, of a crisis that you can learn from. So is the strategy right? Is the structure right? So you shouldn't deal stress just as something you want to get rid of. You should actually, that's what people don't do in their private lives. If, you know, if the beeper goes on because there's smoke in the air, you don't just take out the energy, uh, the, the, the battery because it's beeping. No, you're looking, where's the smoke coming from? Is it burning? 
And then you do something about that. So look for the underlying causes. And that may also have something to do with the uh, communication culture, with uh, a culture of uh, allowing mistakes to learn from them. So all that can be the bigger questions of a very small uh, uh, conflict that you see in everyday life and business. And there is so much more gold to be dug in this bookmark. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Read it from cover to cover. I'm going to read it again. I'm going to pass it on to my daughter say, hey, listen, <laughs> we don't need to be that dramatic. But, you know, the outcome of Thanks. how our life may change and how long it actually changes through any kind of trigger to where we then find our place in this world. Mark. Thank you so much for sharing your story. In a way, I'm really, really sorry that you had to go through this ordeal together with, uh, with your parents and the other hostages. On the other hand, I think you turned it into so, such a valuable piece of, you know, of, of information, of guidance, of hands-on rules and tools to use uh, how we can all deal with stress, never mind uh, a crisis like you lived through. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being with you. Thanks a lot, Patricia. Thank you. And thank you so much, dear Mentory TV community, for having shared yet again a fantastic, unique story with us here on the channel, this time with Mark Wallet. And check out his book. Read it in German, Stark durch Krisen. Read it, read it in English if you want, uh, Strong Through Crisis. And I hope it's going to be uh, translated in many more languages as well. So I hope to see you soon on another edition of Mentory TV. And stay curious. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I am an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.